Genre. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Mrs. Freeman, Mrs. Hopewell, Manly Pointer, and Joy slash Holga from the short story Good Country People. And joining the discussion is producer Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. For anyone unfamiliar, this short story is by Flannery O'Connor and is about a Bible salesman visiting a family in rural Georgia and the improbable events that follow. And it's part of the uh, you know, the iconic short story canon of American literature. Yeah. So, Andrew, this is one that you suggested that we cover. And after rereading it, I realized I need to add this to my readings when I teach uh, American literature. <laughs> when I teach the Survey of American Lit course mm-hmm. that I teach. Somehow, I've been leaving out Flannery O'Connor's, well, 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 one of her most famous works. I was about to say her most famous work, but it, there's some competition uh- there. <laughs> This was this is the only Flannery O'Connor that my Norton anthology has. Yeah, I think it is the and I, like I recognize her name more than I think I would recognize her works. It's like okay, like she's one of the American writers. Mm-hmm. Is this the only Flannery O'Connor that you've read? Um, possibly. What 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 would you say is her most famous? I mean, it's probably this, but it's from the short story collection um, that was called um, "A Good Man Is Hard to Find," and that is like as a, as an entire collection gets required i think fairly regularly in english courses um i have it down in the trivia but um in 1972 a collection of her complete works that was done uh, posthumously uh won the national book award for fiction and then that uh that and i want to say it was 2010 i didn't put this part in the trivia but i saw it mentioned they did a poll of what is the best winner of the national book award for fiction and that posthumous collection won as like the best of all the national book awards for fiction that have been given. Uh, so that's pretty solid. Yeah. So, um, you know, she, her, her work is respected. Um, I'd say that short story collection, a good man is hard to find. And I, I think there's a short story in there titled the same thing. That might be the most famous, uh, but this definitely mm-hmm. in there, like you said, this is in the Norton anthology, which does, um, uh, you know, that, that kind of canonizes a lot of what, you know, what yeah. is the great American work. And yes, there's a lot of issues with the canon, but the inclusion of Flannery O'Connor in the canon I, is not one of the issues that I think could be raised <laughs> with that. Mm-hmm. So some trivia about Flannery O'Connor and this particular story. Um, Flannery O'Connor died at age 39. So when you say like you recognize her name as one of the great American authors, it's that's tragic how much we don't have of you know what she could have written yeah considering you know some of like the great american authors like the writing into their you know 50s and 60s and 70s to like produce the body of work Mm -hmm. yeah you know some of them some of them didn't start till they were 39 yeah so she was diagnosed with lupus at age 52 or not age 52 in 1952 and she would die from complications with that disease in 1964 so she lived 12 years after that diagnosis. And I actually, like, this is one of my areas of ignorance. I had to go, like, look up what this, what is going on with lupus. Like, it's one of those diseases that I hear of, but I didn't know a lot about. And it mentioned that if you are diagnosed, like, if the onset of lupus is later in life, your mortality rate is actually much higher. Um, like, it, it, it tends to be diagnosed between ages of 
um, like like early teenage years up through 40s. Um, but if you get diagnosed closer to your 40s, your uh, the mortality rate was was pretty high um, at that point. And uh, I saw noted that it was surprising that she actually lived 12 years after being diagnosed um, with it. Uh, and her father had also died from uh, the same disease. And after she was diagnosed with that and her health began to fail, her daily routine became to attend a mass in the morning, then write for the rest of the morning, and then spend the rest of the day resting and reading to recuperate. Um, because it, oh, wow. it's um, I, like looking through a lot of the symptoms. And, and it's one of those uh, just just one of those diseases where like the list of potential symptoms is a constellation of horrible things that you would wish on no one. Um, and I don't know exactly what she was experiencing, because, again, it's that constellation of, you know, it might be this or present as this or present as this. Uh, and um, so, so for a lot of her later life, uh, that is what she had to endure. And it, it, I even read that uh, she her, her bones became uh, weakened because of the treatment that she was receiving uh, to try and stave off the disease. And she could only use crutches for uh, to, to move around for much of her later life. Um, and we're talking about the story again, uh, good country people, which was published in 1955 as part of the, um, collection at good man is hard to find, uh, in her life, she wrote two novels and 32 short stories. And, uh, as you would expect when I said that her daily routine became, uh, going to mass, she was a devout Catholic her whole life. And there's a lot of religious imagery, uh, in her works in general and in this short story. Um, but it's, I think there's complexity to how religion is handled and presented. Uh, I, I think this story, like I was, I mean, like when you said it, I was like, okay, I see what's going on here. But also I was actually surprised when, when her devotion was so apparent, right. And, and that description is like, well, that's a very devoted <laughs> yes, religious <laughs> observer. I was like, okay, that recontextualizes this, this story mm -hmm. for me, you know, just a, an immediate, you know, brief recontextualization. And uh, she's most associated with writing um, Southern literature, sometimes gets included with Southern Gothic because um, there's a, an interesting like vein of the grotesque that runs through a lot of her stories. And she is quoted as having said, uh, anything that comes out of the South is going to be called grotesque by the Northern reader, unless it is grotesque, in which case it is going to be called realistic. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know, as a Southerner doing some regionalist writing, she's very aware of uh, how her region was being perceived by some other mm -hmm. other areas of the country. Um, all right. Well, before we move on to the more full summary of this short story, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are monthly shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been recently consuming. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So uh, the long summary of the short story, which is only a couple paragraphs, like really you could abbreviate this down to just a few sentences and capture a lot of the story that happens narrative wise. Um, and like the whole story, I think in the Norton anthology is only 12 pages. Uh, now Norton anthologies famously compress a lot of text onto a page. So I, I would, they really pack it in. <laughs> I would guess in, uh, in the actual, uh, short story collection and where this first appeared, it would probably be like 20, 20 to 30 pages. Um, but it's, it's not a long story. I, I read it in, you know, 
less than a half hour. I think it, it definitely fits the Edgar Allan Poe ideal of being able to consume the entire story in one sitting without having to be interrupted. Yeah. So in the story, we meet Mrs. Hopewell and her daughter who rent a home from Mrs. Freeman. Uh, Mrs. Hopewell and Mrs. Freeman gossip together and drop many of the same colloquialisms that simultaneously have double meanings and no meaning during their conversations together. Mrs. Hopewell's <laughs> daughter, Joy, is 32 and has a PhD in philosophy. She's an atheist and she has a wooden leg. She's legally changed her name to Holga though her mother refuses to call her that. Sometimes Mrs. Freeman will call her Holga when they're alone, but Joy slash Holga doesn't like that either. A Bible salesman comes to the door and rather pushily gets his way into the house, uh, speaking with Mrs. Hopewell. Holga then invites him to stay for supper, but then she says nothing to him during the actual meal. As he's leaving, she talks to him in the driveway, and Mrs. Hopewell wonders what they're talking about. They make a date to meet up the next day. When they meet up again, he kisses her, and then they talk about God and atheism. Holga believes she's smarter than Manly. Uh, oh, I guess I should say, I, I didn't say, his, his name is uh, Manly Pointer. That's the name of the Bible salesman. Uh, and Holga's pretty confident that she's smarter than him. Uh, she leads him up to the hayloft in the barn where they kiss some more. Manly asks to see her wooden leg, where, where her uh, prosthetic leg attaches. She refuses at first, then shows it to him. He opens his Bible uh, that he, so he's, he's lugging around these Bibles. Um, but when he opens the, the case, she sees that he only has two Bibles. Uh, and when he pull, he pulls out the second one, you know, the lower one, and reveals that it's hollowed out. And inside, there's a whiskey flask, playing cards, and condoms. Holga asks for her leg back. Manly refuses to give it to her. Then he, he then packs up his stuff, steals her prosthetic leg, and jumps out of the hayloft. Mrs. Hopewell and Mrs. Freeman watch the Bible salesman walk down the road. Mrs. Hopewell comments that he was so simple, but I guess the world would be better off if we were all that simple. And Mrs. Freeman concludes, some can't be that simple. I know I never could. The end. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it it's the story of a bible yeah. salesman con man who steals a prosthetic leg from a phd and, of philosophy and and i think it's worth pointing out he describes that he has a history of stealing prostheses <laughs> like this is his thing it's like oh this is what i do <laughs> yes uh and and he says you can't report me because i give a different name everywhere that i go <laughs> So like every house he knocks on, he has a different fake name that he's ready to give in case he steals something or cons them out of something. Specifically prosthetics. <laughs> yes, that is like this. So um, to like give my history with this story, like that's the thing that I, I fundamentally like have a history with it from is like that fact. Cause I remember in college, um, you know, reading all these, I, I don't know how many I read, you know, like you're, you're teaching these classes and, and you were saying, I think before we started recording, you want to add this into your syllabus. And so I had a mm -hmm. professor who it was in the syllabus, right? Like, I don't yeah. know. What do you, what are you having people read? Like two dozen of these things? Oh, across the semester, they're usually reading, um, you know, probably mostly short stories uh, for the American uh, Lit Survey, some excerpts from novels. But usually I would say between three and six readings a week. So, I mean, there's a good number that they get through in in a semester. Oh, yeah, um, yeah so, so we're looking at like 30 or 40. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I I mean, I, I was in you know, the humanities program. So I took, you know, two or three or four of these classes. 
I, and so you I just mean, get kind the, of a volume of of stuff. Yeah, it, it's going to vary. Like that survey of American lit is really like that's not a writing course at all. It is really about reading and getting a foundation of American literature, and it's about a breadth of uh, of American authors that you've read and you understand kind of what the lay of the land is. And then you would like at ne- another course, you might only read one author and really do a deep dive into a lot of their work. And certainly there will be college courses on Flannery O'Connor where you would read pretty yeah. much everything that she wrote, uh, <laughs> you know, during, yeah. during a semester. Uh, so, so it can vary pretty greatly, but like you said, uh, if, if you're doing a few survey courses, you're going to be reading dozens of, of short stories, but you're and- saying this one stood out to you. Yeah, and this one stood out to me because I get to the end of it. I'm like, wait, wait, the Bible salesman just stole her leg and like and just leaves her in the hayloft and heads out. <laughs> like, it was so absurd in in the finale because so many of of the, the canon stories, like, you know, as you refer to, like this is collected in the Norton anthology. I'm sure it's in other anthologies. This is, you know, part of the American short story canon. Um, and, but it just has such a weird, absurd finale. Mm-hmm. And, and so few of them do. So few of the short stories are like humorous in this way, like it, and just being part of the canon and being part of like, well, you don't get to this until you're in college classes and all this stuff. It like, it makes it all so serious. Yeah. Unless it's like specifically Mark Twain, but even when it's Mark Twain, they're like, oh, but this is serious comedy. This is hard satire. This is biting wit. I'm like, okay, but this Flannery O'Connor, like. I see it, but also I'm like, this is just really, really bizarre. Yes. And they're, they're talking about her writing style and what we get in this. It's really interesting to me to try and dissect where we get so much character development, because in these 12 pages in this Norton anthology, I think we get more character development of the four characters that we have than sometimes you'd get in an entire novel or an entire film, you know, uh, like there's just so much that's there, but it's also like the classic short story show don't tell like she doesn't really say anything about like what the character's internal monologues are and yet mm-hmm. i feel like so quickly like i know who mrs hopewell and mrs freeman are and i know who joy slash holga is and and maybe like like i know both versions of the bible salesman like when he's doing his performative sales routine mm-hmm. of the ah shucks i'm just a good christian young man trying to make I'm my just, way i'm just a dummy yeah. trying to sell bibles trying to sell bibles uh, i can barely read them but i know everyone needs them so i'm getting them out here uh and then you like see that that facade drop in the con man like i i I see it all in these 12 pages just so clearly. Um, and it's done through this economy of word choice and what gets presented to the reader, but it's not through like the interior dialogue or monologues or anything like that. I, and I don't know how she pulls it off so well. Yeah. It's, it's one thing that like, you, you know it when you see it, but to try and break down exactly what's going on is really difficult. And to try and mimic it, I don't think of, I, I can't think of very many other authors who do it quite as well as what she, she does. Yeah, like it has a, a very distinctive flavor. Um, and tone, I think the tone is is like the tone of the narrator is is the thing that got me. Like I was halfway through, and I was like, this narrator is a character. Mm-hmm. Like the the person telling this story, you have to like get a certain flavor from them to see that they have an opinion about what's going on. Like they are, it, it, I don't know. There's just like this layer mm-hmm. of the narrator telling the story, saying like hey, I'm not just telling you the story. I am providing you context by how I'm telling the story, not by like giving you context and describing it all, but like the way I'm telling it is giving you the context that you need. And it's like, well, this narrator exists in a specific time. And I, and I don't think the narrator is Flannery Mm O'Connor, you know, like 
and so there's this extra character. I'm writing it in the voice of this character who is observing these people and then is describing them to you, the reader. Right. So, you know, as, as an example it's, of that it's, it's narrator, a, um, yeah. like on the, on the second page, you've given some of Mrs. Hopewell's and Mrs. Freeman's like dialogue against each other where they say like, everybody is different. Yes. Most people is, it takes all kinds to make the world. I always said it did myself. Uh, and then the, the commentary that we get about that is the girl was used to this kind of dialogue for more of it for dinner sometimes they had it for supper too <laughs> like uh like there, there's a little um you know uh sarcasm of um you know commentary that's happening in there but it's also not beating you over the head with it and it's the kind of thing that you just chuckle at and you move along when you're reading the story but it's also revealing who these characters are yeah and i think um like i'm just trying to think really hard it's like what is it that the like that the writing style and the narration style and the narrator is doing to like create that feeling. Like it's like, I mean, like I mentioned, you know, it's like the narrator is a character mm-hmm. and it's like that character is already my friend. Yes. You yeah, know, like and, and, you get, and you get such a sterile, you get such a sterile style and other things where the narration, right. The words on the page is like, I just need to tell you what's there. You build all the imagery, you build all the stuff. And like, there's no imagery in, in this, right? Like they talk about the house very, very little. They talk about the locations very, very little. They describe the people and what they're wearing a little bit, but that's so that you get the people. Um, And so it's like, well, like, you know what houses in the area look like. I'm not going to bother describing that. Mm-hmm. And that's <laughs> you know, like- it's like, you know, and we know. And so I don't have to like lay it all out, but I'm imagining, um, you know, other authors where it's like, okay, like, I'm just going to give you like, I'm describing it. Here's the cold facts. Here's the the stuff. Here's the warm facts, whatever it is. But it's so factual. And this is so non-factual. Mm-hmm. It, it does a, a couple interesting things. Like when we talk about, uh, you know, that that American literary history, um, there's post-Civil War, there's a, there's a spirit that's called regionalism, where a lot of authors are like trying to explain what their region is like. And and what Flannery O'Connor is doing later, you know, in the, in the 1950s, feels like it has a regionalist element where like, I'm, I'm going to represent who the people are of my region. And uh, you're, you're going to come to know them and understand them um, through reading this short story. And, and so there's that, but it also has some of that postmodern um, kind of like cynical disillusionment with everything <laughs> that is, mm-hmm. is a hallmark of postmodernism and also like a playful absurdist humor uh, that, that's present with it, which is another hallmark of that, of that postmodernism. So postmodernism coming about, um, you know, after all these, uh, you know, many of the, mo- the, the most iconic postmodern writers like saw the disillusionment after world war one, when we get the first modernist movement, and then we get a sequel that's worse <laughs> with, with world <laughs> war two. And it's like, we're going to turn up some of that disillusionment with all the traditional um, modes of making meaning trust in government trust in religion trust in uh philosophy and education and we're going to be disillusioned with that but we're gonna have a little fun as we point out why we're disillusioned with it and one thing that's so interesting about flannery o'connor is like we said in that you know in giving the trivia like she remained a devout catholic but here you see her poking at some of the hypocrisies um, mm-hmm. that can be present but, in religion um yeah like she, she it's, it's, like she's not glorifying the religious persons right in the in the story but she's also not glorifying the atheist like, like no one comes out looking yeah. great <laughs> um it's it, yeah I, like, I, it's... I think there's a lot of pointing out that uh there can be ignorance and blindness whatever it is that you're like trying to frame your meaning uh you know how you're going to see the world so uh joy slash holga's uh mother is uh is religious so is mrs freeman uh we have the traveling salesman who's putting on this this 
veneer or facade of, of uh, religiosity. But then we have uh, Joy Slash Holga, who is very openly atheist and, and kind of um, looks down on anyone who, who still believes in religion. And um, none of them come out looking like they're, they have the right worldview, or the right philosophy yes. to guide their lives. Yeah, this is one of the things that I like seemed like a really strong theme that's like, okay, I definitely want to talk about this is like, okay, you you have multiple different things going on. And it in a way like and you get to the end, it's like, okay, actually, everyone's a simpleton. <laughs> yes. Ultimately, like when it comes to the things that you believe in, and the and your perspective on everything, it's like, oh, in the end, everyone's just a little bit of a simpleton. Everyone's in their own bubble to a certain degree and like can't see past it. And and even when you like think you're seeing past it, it's it's like you just have a different shade on your bubble. Like so you get like the religious version, you get the atheist version, like the post-college graduate, like um, Holga has um, a PhD in, in philosophy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like education doesn't mean you're not a simpleton <laughs> in some interactions right. and, and that you can't be taken advantage of in a given situation. And and the Bible salesman or the, the con artist, Manly Pointer, like he kind of comes out of this is like. This is the only person who knew what he was doing, and it's because he was faking it. Yeah, and yet, like we, we don't come out like thinking like he he's he knows what's going on. Like he's he's got things figured out. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's like this this like having a habit of stealing prosthetics. Like, okay, but like why? Like we don't have any reason for it. It's like this is just what he does. But he's able to take advantage of the other people. Mm-hmm in a way that they do not manage to take advantage of him. So that's like the, the one he never like, comes imbalance away with the other in the interactions. Right? Uh, yeah. He, he, he's the one who's like succeeds in what he's trying to do. Uh, yeah. And, and we get and, some levels uh, like there's other things that reveal some hypocrisy. So like um, when he is trying to sell the Bible to Mrs. Hopewell, she says, uh, like he says, I don't see a Bible here in the parlor. So you probably you, you're missing one. And she's like, well, I have one. It's in the bedroom because my daughter's uh, an atheist and she doesn't want me to have it in the parlor. And then the narrator says the Bible is really in the attic. <laughs> yeah. And so there's like these layers of, of performativeness where and, and I think one of the things is like Manly is so honest about his deception in the end and everyone else is like so be, is being self-deceptive mm-hmm. um, more so than he is, I think, where he's saying like, look, like, here's what's going on. I'm like, I'm going to I'm going to cop to it. Right. Like I do this. I go I fake sale Bible, sell Bibles and then I steal stuff and I got you. And then um, and Holga is going into this interaction, like I'm going to convince this guy that religion's stupid. I'm going to use my PhD. I'm going to pretend to be 17 and all these things. And, um, and the older women have, you know, like the gossipy patterns and, and all these things. And so like, it's, it's, it really is like a wonderful story. Like you said, where you can feel, Oh, I, I see who these people are. Like I recognize these characters, but it also like, gives me a small revelation about these characters that I don't think the typical story provides where it's like, no, like we're like, we're going to point out some flaws for everybody. Uh, yeah. And, and I think that's a, a real strength in Flannery O'Connor's um, writing that even though she herself was religious, like you, you see like a playful irreverence about all these topics, <laughs> you know, every, everything that comes up. Um, she's not going to be as, too self-serious um, about it. And there is that um, general 
playful absurdity that that you know that vein that runs through this story and like you said you get to the end and the guy runs off with the prosthetic leg and he's just kind of like like, what am I supposed to take? <laughs> like, like, what is the, yeah. the, the, the takeaway? Um, and I think we've like gotten to a lot of interesting aspects of this, uh, but still, like, you know, in the end, like we said, the, the con man does run away with with her leg, and it's, I, I think that kind of you're left dumbfounded <laughs> at, at what the story, like the story yeah. itself, uh, I, the actual beats of what happens is so absurd that you don't quite know what to do with it. Yeah. And, but I think when you like, after you, you have that context and if you go back into it and you're looking at all like the little details about the people and their interactions and the phrases that they use and things like that, it starts to actually like come through. Like, I think this, this requires an additional reading, right? I don't think that you're going to really get a ton out of this the first time through. Yes. And I think when you do like start to look back and say, okay, what, what what is Flannery O'Connor actually doing with like, you start to see some things that, become more important whereas at first maybe it just feels like an absurd touch so like a joy slash holga's whole sense of identity right like like she really does seem to be fractured right so she literally has two mm-hmm. names and um she has uh a, a lot of things that seem contradictory about her where um you know she uh feels a little judgmental towards uh she looks down upon mrs hopewell and mrs freeman but she also like knows the rhythms of their conversations because she hangs out and listens to them all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. She knows exactly what's good. What's going to be said. Uh, like, the, and, and we're talking about like a, a person who's, who feels fractured. Like she literally has a piece of her body removed and taken <laughs> at, the, at the end of the story. I, I don't think that's, uh, you know, a random occurrence, even though it may seem that way when you, when you first uh, see it happening. Um, there's so much that's interesting about her. Like, like I said, this is a very short, brief, short story. But when I was writing that, um that that summary like i just started to put in details about what we get from her like she's 32 she has a phd in philosophy she's an atheist she has a wooden leg she's changed her name to holga she uh her mom refuses to call her that which would seem like uh so disrespectful but she actually gets annoyed when someone else calls her holga uh you like there's so much that's fascinating about this person as 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 a character and it's like like you were saying i think it's on the second pass that you start to put some of those pieces in a way that uh start to maybe tease out a little bit more of what with this character hello listeners we're back it's been about a month since we started this recording we had some technical difficulties and had to uh break the episode before we had finished it up and then uh it was hard for us to circle back and get get to it so i think we're both actually on different mics than we were recording last time so the quality of our voices may just be (laughs) a little bit different than the first half of this episode and we also apologize if we repeat ourselves at all but we're going to try and wrap this up with a uh, a good summation of what makes this story uh stick with us quite you know quite so much as it does so again we're we're tackling good country people and i believe we're about to talk about some of the other characters besides joy and holga you know joy slash holga because we we just covered her a bit if i remember correctly and the one that i want to get to first would be manly pointer <laughs> i was uh, that is the first one that i wanted to talk about as well because it's i mean also i should just say like even a month later when i think about this story i just kind of smile to myself like it it feels really nice like it's really it's really smart and witty and just feels really great but yeah I manly mean, pointer horrifying and wrong and bad decisions <laughs> but but yeah oh yes but also there's something charming about it and i can't quite put my finger on what that charm is but it's there well i think one element of the charm is that like 
really everybody kind of gets knocked down a peg in this story. Like nobody's immune from it. It's not saying like anyone's superior or inferior. It's like, no, everyone's got a little room for some humor at their expense. Yeah, I, I think I can definitely see that. And 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 so Manly Pointer. There's layers to this guy that we've got to deal with, like he's a con man. Yes. Well, so we we first when we first meet him, he is presenting himself as a very earnest religious salesman, you know, just trying to sell the good word of God. He's, he's trying to spread the Bible as far as he can. And he has the whole dinner and he maintains this charade, uh, charade, charade, charade of being a, you know, the, this one version of himself. And then when he drops the mask at the very end, I'm simultaneously not surprised. Um, I simultaneously feel like it was coming, but also I think if he hadn't dropped the mask, it wouldn't have felt out of place. Like there, there's enough in the performance that he gave that you could see him being that earnest salesperson, but also it is, you know, it, it feels right that this was all a con the whole time. Yes. Um, and I think one of the interesting things is like the way, and, and I think this is like, like narratively interesting is the way that the charade is dropped kind of comes in stages, but it's like reverse. And so when he reveals to, to Holga that um, he's not all squeaky clean and everything, and he's got a hollowed it out Bible with, with condoms and liquor um, you're like seeing all of this, like, okay, he's not who he says he is. And then there's still a bunch of story before he actually explains anything. And then he says, yeah, I'm a con man and I steal prosthetics. <laughs> like his ex, ex, his explanation comes last right. out of all of this, where you would think a lot of authors would put that, or at least part of that, like actually verbally to the front. And she just, she just says like, no, he opens up this hollowed out Bible. Mm-hmm. And then you get everything you need to know. It's like, oh, like, his his facade was all hollow. He's not actually a Bible salesman. He's as real as this Bible is. But see, at, is at that point, completely fake. You you don't know really that he's a full con man. He could just be a hypocrite at that point. Yes, and I think that's yeah. the layer the, the layer that really makes it you know the story sing is that it, you think maybe the twist is oh this religious guy is just a hypocrite. Uh, you know, he's, yeah, there's a little, uh, poking at, at the performance of religion in the American South, uh, or, or he's maybe not a hypocrite, but he's a con man who's just conning people who want to buy Bibles. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think you could believe he was someone who was a real Bible salesman who, uh, you know, also, you know, has all these, like takes advantage of people. Well, it has these vices like that. That could be a level of who this character is. Right. Uh, someone who does want to sell the good, you know, the, the Bible really wants to be a good person, but just gives in to, uh, you know, the alcohol and the sex, you know, and and, and can't help themselves. And, and that's a believable character there. Uh, but this is someone who is playing on the either the naivete or the hypocrisy of people who want big Bibles for show in their front rooms. Uh, and as we learn, this isn't even his name. He's he's very experienced at uh at getting out of town after his cons <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. like there's more than just oh i'm falling for my vices yeah and um and another thing is like the descriptions that they get i feel like they describe his clothes more than anyone else's mm-hmm. uh in in this book and it just paints such a kind of weird picture of him like his his clothes are like 
not quite fitting or he's got like the hat that's I can't remember the hat's too big or too small. But yes, no, exactly. Like we said, it's been uh, over months since we actually read and recorded the episode or started recording this episode. But as soon as you mentioned his clothes, I just remember, had the image of them being ill fitting uh, immediately jumped yeah. in my head. Yeah. And it's like. I assume that's on purpose for him, but I don't know why. Well, I think it's uh, the idea that, uh, that, you know, there's something off about this individual, right? That it's not uh, um, both. He's, he's not completely comfortable in the clothes that he's wearing, right? You know, there, there's that, that part of it. Uh, and there's also, I think the, you should look at him and immediately sense there's, um, you know, something that's not quite perfectly put together uh, about him uh, that, for the reader, there's a, a, you know, a little bit of discomfort there. Yeah. Um, but he's also like kind of, so he's like charming in his sincerity when he's like the aw shucks Bible salesman. Mm-hmm. And then he's kind of charming in his, oh, I'm not that guy. And then he's kind of charming in his con man, like fully revealed persona too. Yes. He feels I, as much as I want to say, like, the, the ill-fitting clothes shows, like, a discomfort in who he is, but, like, he presents himself very comfortably in each one of those levels of character. Um, I, I think mostly in the in the final reveal, like, this is, like, he has no shame in being the con man. He is comfortable mm-hmm. identifying himself as that person. And, uh, you know, and recognizing that there's... Uh, that he's wearing the black hat. You know, he is the villain of this piece as he steals her leg and leaves her in the loft of the bar. Yeah. It, so like he's, he's, he's such a perplexing character because I keep thinking about him. I'm like, but like, who is this guy? Like, I'm trying to think of examples of this character in media. I'm like, it, there's such a weird mix mm-hmm. to him. Uh, I mean, the one thing that I think maybe makes it a little difficult for us to put our finger on an exact uh, analog is that particularly for like television, if you're gonna have a character who's a con man, there's very often the urge is embraced to put a heart of gold there and there's no heart of gold in, in him. So like you, you immediately it's like, well, Sawyer and lost is obviously like he's, he's kind of comfortable playing his roles and being the con man and owning up to the fact that he's the trickster con man. But they also really layered in a lot of like, is he a good guy? <laughs> yeah. There's like uh, that, that conflict of like, am I a bad person? Am I a good person? Like I'm conflicted about who I am. And there's no conflict here. Right. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's just who he is, <laughs> and, and and like no inclination for for change or maturation seems to be present. Yeah, like he's totally content to to be so, and and he he has the line where he's like, "Look, I know where I stand with God, and I know it's not good, but like it's where I stand." <laughs> yeah, um, and so he has like a confidence in his not depravity because it's not quite that sinister. Hmm. But like his like his rascaliness, like his mischief, because like I'm trying to think of like, OK, but like what is what's the right word for this? Like he like he's not sinister. It's yeah, a little like, worse than mischief. Yes, exactly. And also it feels really weird to say, but like there's a sincerity in his like acknowledgement of, of what he is. <laughs> you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like you. uh that makes it a little different than a lot of other villains that I can think of. Yeah. Um, and, and also like an embracing of, of like, look, I know I've got a weird niche 
con going on where I steal prosthetics. Like this is not the normal con. Like there's there's not like a huge value in this. Like he's not getting rich off of this. This is just the thing he enjoys doing. Right. Um, and no sense of like it seems like he's living a vagabond li- life. So can he even have like a trophy room of prosthetics? Yeah. Somewhere? I have no idea. <laughs> Or is it just, you know, I'm going to carry this very far away from you and then throw it away. <laughs> and that's my game. Yeah. It, like, that's why I think, like, mischief is maybe, like, the closest term I can come up with. And, like, I don't think he's, like, I don't know what he's getting out of this except a little bit of joy. And then he's going to move on to the next one. Yeah. And so, like, for him, it kind of does seem like a joke. Uh-huh. And, and it doesn't seem, I mean, like, obviously this is significant and inconvenient but like he's not damaging their livelihoods probably yeah i mean this, like, like holga's it, still going to be able to get around fun. this is definitely crossing a line of innocent fun but yes. it's not malicious to the point of you know murder or or uh you know rape or or you know a lot of things that the the real villains of pieces do and are, are completely irredeemable and i am not trying to say there's anything redeemable about this but it also just feels different on the morality scale to, yeah like somehow they found like the perfect spot for him to be where it's like, okay, this is probably not really changing their lives. This is going to be a weird episode and she's going to get a new leg and think, have to think about like, man, it was weird when that guy stole my leg. And, and, and like what you said about ever being knocked down a peg, like she, uh, with her, her belief of like her intellectual support superiority. Like this is going to be very humbling for her. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, like she, she's thought she was seeing through the veneer of the religious person to the, the real person beneath who, you know, the, the hypocrite, but really she was the one that was being played. Yeah. And I think there is a, a very interesting dynamic in, in that with, um with Manly Pointer, because she is approaching this like, Oh, I'm going to seduce this guy and, and take him down a peg. And then, he ends up like completely overwhelming her because she's not actually like that worldwise either. Mm -hmm. Like she, she's kind of like fantasizing about seducing him. And then she starts fantasizing about being seduced by him. Yes. And then Um, in the end, the seduction doesn't even happen. He just takes the leg and leaves. (laughs) Yes. Um, It's just such an odd, it's such an odd finale to it. Well, and also, I, I do want to recognize, like, O'Connor's skill. There's something that is so perfect about the hollowed-out Bible. Like, as soon as he pops mm-hmm. that open, like, the audience thinks, oh, we know exactly who this is now. But then there's, like you said, the the next level, too. But the, the hollowed-out Bible, Bible is just a symbol. It's just something that's just so fascinating. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think I've said all I need to say about Manly Pointer. It's, like, he's he's such an enigma to this story even though he like expresses himself completely he's like here's what i'm about but i'm like yeah but like i still don't feel like i know <laughs> what's going on no I, th- I, th- I think that's a valid take and i think that kind of um th- you know that sense of uh it's not really full ambiguity but this um you know sense that you haven't quite really nailed down is one thing that makes the story so enticing and like one that kind of lingers in your mind uh where it's not a frustration with the story but kind of a fascination with like what what have I not quite worked out about these characters? Yeah, and and this would be, I think, a short story that, like, I would want to see it adapted, but I don't think there's any way anyone would adapt it because 
there's not like a so what at the end, right? Like mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing that like you'd kind of get in like a, a Twilight Zone sort of thing, but Twilight Zone always has like a, a message, like they're allegories or there's a, a moral of the story or something at, at the end. And this one, I'm like, it's just so odd that I'm like, well, there is kind of a moral of the story, but like, I don't know if that can be conveyed in, I think that can only be conveyed by, by like the text, right? You have to have all of these words saying what these people are and then showing the hypocrisy and the contradictions and the confusion. You have to have that in words. I don't think you could, you could do that visually. Yeah. If anything, it feels like the sort of thing that would have been adapted back in the day of like uh, the networks doing uh, like the weekly studio playhouse, where it's like a film (laughs) to play every single week. Uh, And it was going to be very eclectic. You never do what you're going to get from one week to the next. And there wasn't really like a theme running through it. Um, But like you you couldn't really expand this out to film length. Uh, And um, yeah, so I I guess the only thing now that maybe is in that realm would be like a short film festival. But uh, I'm guessing there's just rights are too messy to even try. Well, and, and and I still just like thinking about it. I'm like, I don't think I want to see this. I I mm-hmm. like I like the the narrative that we have inside their heads and and all of the the texture that that provides. Which, I mean, a lot of times, you know, adaptation is really good, right? And there's there's things that you can do in film that you can't do in books. And people don't often talk about like things that you can do in a short story that you can't adapt. And this has some of those qualities. Yeah, I, th- I think you're really right um, about that. You're you're nailing some of why this is a special short story. You know, one that pretty quickly was canonized as like, oh, this is this is part of American fiction now. <laughs> you know, we're we're gonna be talking about this one for a while, and we still are. Yeah. Um, should we touch briefly on Mrs. Freeman and Mrs. Hopewell? And I think we can probably do both of them at once. Because I, I was gonna say, I hope we overlap there. I think we should do them both both together because they almost entirely appear together. Um, and and I wouldn't like. I wouldn't be able to tell you which one's which, except that one of them has a scene with Manly alone and one of them doesn't. Right. Um, but like they're they're gossipy mm-hmm. and they have platitudes that they just kind of speak back to each other. Yes. And I, I think I maybe said something along these lines at the beginning, but I like the way the platitudes are simultaneously layered with double meaning, but also saying absolutely nothing in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the way that you can say like, oh, you know, bless him. You know, something like that in the South can be both the there's the surface level of, oh, you know, we hope for the best for him. But also the second level that uh, he really needs some help <laughs> to, right. to, to it, make it, it out of the situation. Like, it, like it, it's, a, it's a statement of, of pitifulness. Yes. But with the way that it's delivered in this short story, they're both also saying nothing, even as there's those double meanings and so many of the platitudes that were given. Yeah, I think one of them says, like, like, just as I always say. Mm-hmm. It, and it's just like it's a statement of agreement but like that's kind of it yeah and i think there's uh as far as you know if we're, if we're trying to figure what flannery o'connor is trying to get at there's definitely a recognition of kind of the vacuousness of these kinds of gossip mongering conversations uh that um are, are are circling the idea of like revelations about everyone around them uh, but really nothing is being accomplished in the conversation. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I also really like the way they're introduced because they're the main introduction in the story is like, it talks about the kitchen and like these two women are There's always talking and, with them. Yeah. And it, well, and it's, it's like not spending time in their conversation. It's spending time talking about the types of conversations that they keep having. Mm-hmm. And it like, 
it's not like it's a montage of these conversations, but it instantly gives me like the texture of this house and the texture of these women and and the kitchen and, and, like, and okay, the this rhythm, is what the kitchen's like. Uh, you know the rhythm of their day. Yes, very quickly. Um, and I I think there's an interesting mix of you know like there's the old maxim which is of course you know meant to be broken, but the the, the show don't tell, and and this has an odd mix of both where like we're told that this is what they're you know here's exactly what their daily routines are like but then we get just you know the conversations that the narrator is not really offering that commentary on uh we're we're just hearing it but we immediately can can work out for ourselves as the reader what these conversations are like and what these conversations mean yeah and i think there's some stories that really really benefit from like being told like here's the kind of situation you're in now you know what that situation feels like more or less now you can proceed you know you need that it, it it's like instantly contextualizing the rest of this story. Right. You know, like this story matters more for having the larger context of their lives to some degree. Um, even if it's not actually part of the story or like, um, or like with Holga, like we're told about her college experience, but we're not told a lot of stories from her college experience. And we're not really shown like her going to college, her going yeah. to class or anything like that. But you, but you need to know that about her So you have context for how she behaves in this story. Mm-hmm. And like, and it's really well balanced because I can imagine getting into a story where it's like, well, if, if this is what this person's all about, I wish you would just tell me that story. Yeah. And I, I think one thing that Flannery O'Connor does so well is, um, you know, as we're saying, like she balances all these things, she balances that showing and telling to give us just the right flavor uh, of what these people's lives are like. Um, but also in that giving us all that right information, as we said, like she pulls back from giving us that. So what Timmy at the end and like wrapping everything up and giving us a moral story or anything like that. And we're just kind of left with this, uh, you know, perpetually intriguing, but perplexing, but satisfying short story. Yes. I think like all the things we've talked about, I do want to stress, like it's pretty satisfying when you get to the end and you're like, all right, that's, that's the end. Like you're not, there we go. you're yeah. not anxious about it. You're like, that was a story. And like, I'm glad I read that. So do you have any final thoughts on good country people? I just, again, like really solid, satisfying 15 minutes of reading, um, you know, maybe, maybe 30 minutes tops. Yes. The, I think this really does satisfy uh, Poe's maxim about writing that it should be able to be consumed in one sitting. So you never disrupt the story. Like he, he, he wrote you know, the novel's too long. Cause you get, you put the story down and you go to the bathroom and you put the story down cause it's dinner time or you, you can't, you know, read it before you have, you fall asleep. That's a problem for him when it comes to stories. This is absolutely a story that you can pick up, disappear in the world and come back and you, your phone won't have buzzed. You, you know, your body won't have told you you have to go to sleep or go to the bathroom or go eat or any of those things. And, and, you know, possibly your kids won't have interrupted you uh, while you're reading it. You know, it, it's, it, it hits that sweet spot of length. That wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. Please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jadorowski. And producer Andrew is at DizMinute. I do want to promote that Andrew's podcast, Disney animation minute essentials is currently releasing season two about the little mermaid so you can go here producer andrew and his wife kestra discuss the little mermaid one minute at a time with guests each week including yours truly one week that has already posted i'm not sure which week it was but i was in there 
Uh, thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. app of choice that uh, that really helps us out oh man I, I messed it up okay fresh read andrew i'm sorry that's fine <laughs>